Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Welcome to the Elite Advisor Blueprint, the podcast for world-class financial advisors. I'm Brad Johnson, VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, and it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In today's conversation, I grabbed some time with Carl Richards. For those of you unfamiliar with Carl, which I don't think will be too many of you, he is a CFP and creator of the Sketch Guy column, which has appeared weekly in the New York Times since 2010. Carl and his work have also been featured on Oprah.com and Forbes.com, and he frequently keynotes at financial planning conferences all around the world. Through his simple sketches, Carl makes complex financial concepts easy to understand, and these sketches have served as the foundation for his two books, The One-Page Financial Plan, as well as The Behavior Gap. Today, I'm excited to bring this conversation to you all as I'm not sure we've ever done a deeper dive into the structure of a proper appointment process on this show, as well as the psychology of why your prospects make the decision to either work with you or to work with someone else. So let's get to the show. But before we do, one last thing. In this conversation, we cover many ideas that are shared in Carl's book, The One-Page Financial Plan. So I thought, why not grab a bunch of copies to share with all of you Blueprint listeners? So here's what to do next if you'd like your free copy. All that I ask is that you leave an honest review out on iTunes for our show. To make it easy, there's a graphic right at the top of the show notes out at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 61. That's 61. Or if you happen to be listening in on a mobile player, simply scroll down on most of them and tap the link. Once you've left a review, just drop us an email via brad at bradleyjohnson.com with your iTunes username and a mailing address, and we'll drop you a copy in the mail as a thank you. That simple. Also, a quick apology to our listeners in Canada, the UK, Australia, all around the world internationally. Due to crazy high shipping prices, it just doesn't make sense to spend $20 to $40 to ship you a $10 book. So please accept my apology and just go support Carl and grab a copy at your local bookstore or out on Amazon. As always, all the additional show notes, books mentioned, people discussed, as well as a full transcript of the entire show can be found at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 61 as well. So that's it. As always, thanks for listening in. And without further delay, my conversation with Carl Richards. Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. I have special guest Carl Richards here with us today. Welcome to the show, Carl. Brad, thanks for having me. And I have to tell you, like this is my first attempt to, I always try to hijack people's podcasts right from the beginning. I just have to tell you in preparation for this, I went and watched, rewatched a bunch of the episodes, listened to, watched, and thanks Right, like the generous work you're doing for the community is amazing. Like, I'm thoroughly impressed. There's a difference between, anyway, super, super good stuff. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it, man. Coming from you, a guy that's been in this industry and been a thought leader in this space for a long time, I I appreciate that. That's humbling. Mm, Um, Actually, we were just talking here before we went live. Speaking of humbling, so little known fact. So this is going to be a something new to the blueprint listeners out there. You were actually my very first podcast guest. So I think it was actually when you were putting out the one page financial plan. Mm. And 
I had a blog at the time. I had no podcast. And either you or someone on your team reached out and said, Hey, you know, I've got this new book coming out. What do you think? And so we did this kind of impromptu interview that I think was on your Skype account. And it was like 30 minutes. You were the nicest ever because it was the absolute worst interview ever. I was not prepared. I hadn't read your book. It was so bad. It was so bad. I actually took it down later, but we were just talking before and there was a, a serious lesson that came out of that that we were just talking about. So you mind sharing your thoughts because I know you're a creator, you're doing public work. What, what are your thoughts around just getting out there and jumping in? Yeah, it's so, to me, it's so funny because I was just thinking through like, I don't recall it being bad. And I think that's what's so interesting to me about that is like, if you, and, and maybe listeners can go through this exercise, right? If you think about the last time you saw someone fail, Right. Like maybe you saw what comes to my mind is like a a child at a performance Mm. or even an adult. Like the last time you, if you think about the last time you saw someone, you know, in quotes fail, think about the emotions you felt. Right. Like to me, I've done this exercise hundreds of times with people and mostly the words that come up are like, like empathy or like, like courage, like job. Like that's what you're feeling. Like you can do it. Good job. So that's what we feel when we see someone else. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you're recalling that, I don't remember any of those feelings. I don't remember it being bad. I also don't remember thinking good job because I didn't feel like it was stumbling. But, but when we see someone else fail, we're like cheerleader, like, go, oh, you can do it. And then mm-hmm. now let's switch the roles. Like think about the last time you got up and failed and what are the feelings there? And it's like shame, embarrassment. I took it down later you know, like all of those feelings start coming up and we're like, what if we just extended ourselves the same grace we extend others, right? And just say, look, because nobody else, like, and you hear this all the time and that nobody, first of all, no one saw it. Like, sorry, Brad, I know you yeah, know I was, I was fortunate at the time. I had probably two subscribers. One <laughs> your, of mom and, your mom and your sister, yeah, right? Like, exactly. and your, your sister's lying. If you have a sister, she's lying. It was just your mom, right? Like she wasn't even listening back then. So first nobody saw it. And the people who did. So I think the message of that, like, and this is so important. Like, I'm glad we get to start here is like doing public work is scary. It's scary. It's, it's scary is built into the process. If it wasn't scary, it wouldn't be sort of dancing with the mystery is the way I think of it, like touching the, cause you're, you're literally putting something that you care about out and you're asking people to evaluate it. Mm. Of course that's scary. So just know those of you who are listening, who are, who want, you've got this thing that you want to do. And I'm hope there's more of you, especially advisors. Like, please, I know there's something that you want to do in public. We need you to do it because you need to make a difference because there's a lot of people not making a difference in our industry. And we all know that. We need you to make a difference. You got this thing. It's scary. Just know that we all feel that, right? Like we all feel it. It's part of the process and you're going to be okay, right? No one's going to die. No one's going to die. And you know what? It's a great moat around your castle because those that are scared to do it, that the ones that aren't scared are the smaller percentage than, than the ones that are. So if you actually do the work, go out and fail. Totally. So one of my friends, Michael Hyatt, he, he basically says, um, fail when no one is watching. Yeah. And that, that's what you got to do. I mean, you, we were talking about writing, which you've done a lot of. Um, I guarantee the writing you're doing today compared to the writing you were doing 10, 15, 20 years ago, dramatically different and improved based on just getting out there and iterating and, and practicing, yeah. you know? So Yeah. I love that Michael Hyatt saying, I also think, and I know he would agree, 
is fail when no one's watching and then keep failing on even bigger stages, right? Like I love the, the sort of opposite end of that is, is Seth Godin that often says, hey, do things that may not work. And if you're going to do something in public that may not work, like there's got to be that tension. I like, I live for that tension. Like I'm, I'm trying to reduce everything in my life that protects me from that tension. Like, I want to feel that like, oh my gosh, this may not work, but I'm going to do it anyway. And just know that I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone that's doing new and novel work that's not scared while they're doing it. So the difference isn't that the fear goes away. The difference is that you do it anyway. I think the reason I really want to hammer that home is because if you're, if you're thinking about doing it and you're like, what's wrong with me? I'm scared. You need to have a voice in your head that says nothing's wrong with you, brother. Right? Like just dive in. This is what it feels like. This is what the water, the water's a little cold, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It turns out you're human. Yeah. Actually another Michael Hyde, I'm going to, I'm just plugging him all at the beginning of this conversation. He was um, big into really, as I was diving deep into setting more profound goals for what I was doing. He said, if you set a goal and it doesn't scare you at some level, it's not a good goal. And you know, whether that's out in the public domain or something else with your business, I, I found that to be very true. Yeah, totally. Well, let's dive in here. I love the philosophical conversation. That's what I knew going into this. It would be fun. We could take it wherever it went. So let's go. Let's start with the doing public work. You have made a career out of very simplistic sketches. And so what I've never heard, I've seen it. I've, I've seen the New York Times column. I, in fact, I'll hold this up for those watching on YouTube. I actually have a Carl Richards print from, this is at least a decade old, when you originally, I think, started offering them on your website. So I've been following you for a long time, but I've never actually heard the origin story of how did you turn these simplistic sketches into a career and everything that's come from there? Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And totally by accident, right? Like it was just sort of kind of playing in traffic and hoping (laughs) to get hit. (laughs) And that's the only thing I've been asked this question a lot. And the only thing I have to offer is like playing traffic, you know, like, so the way that worked was... I was sitting, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to this, sitting at a desk when I was a financial advisor at a big brokerage firm that will go unnamed, but has a bullet symbol and is owned by a bank, sitting at a desk trying to explain a relatively complex subject to a client. Mm-hmm. And these were smart, like all of our clients, right? Smart, intelligent, successful people. So the fact that I was getting blank stares from them was not their problem, right? It was mine. And I thought I was pretty good at this in terms of making things simple and easy to understand. And I was just getting blank stares and out of sort of an act of desperation. This is not a a blackboard, but it was like this, like there was a whiteboard on the, on the wall. And I jumped up and said, no, like this, just purely out of an act of desperation. Like, no, this is really important. You got to understand. And I drew like circle and boxes and some arrows or something. And they were like, Oh, Oh, okay. I get it. And that feeling was sort of this, like, Whoa. I, and I, again, I didn't know, shouldn't overemphasize. It wasn't like lightning striking. It was just sort of like, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I've really paid a lot of attention to in my career is just like little, little bits of tailwind, right? Just little, little bits of like, oh, what, what do you make of that? That was interesting. And so then I did it again with the next client and again, and then I started put, had a client who said, can I take that with me and show my spouse? Because I drew it like at lunch on a yellow pad or something, right? You remember what the original sketch was, the very first one? No, I think that one, I don't remember who it was. It was Dave and Diane without sharing their last names. 
And I believe it was just flow of money. It was like, here's your retirement account. Here's your bank account. And we're going to do this. And then when you retire, we'll reverse the arrow, right? Like it was just sort of like cash flow. Hmm. Cause you've seen estate planners do this all the time, right? This, this is like a standard piece of an estate planning engagement is the sort of the flow, like the buckets of the trust accounts. And so did that anyway, client says, can I take that home to show my spouse? And when I saw the piece of paper leave, like physically like leave, I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then another, you know, whatever, a month or two goes by and somebody calls and says, hey, that thing you drew on the whiteboard while we were in there, could you just scan it real quick and send it to me? Could you like redraw it? And when I saw that digitally, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, digitally. And this was early days, you know, 90, 99. 98, 99. So like the internet, you know, it's the world wide web, you know, like you could, you could go get a sandwich while the two pages that were on it loaded, you know, like I was downloading Napster songs that took about 25 minutes at the time. Yeah. With a modem. Like if you're under 30, like don't, don't even worry about it. But I remember things like, Hey, I could put this up online. So I started putting them up and it was, it was an irrational, like illogical thing. And my wife, and she was right. You used to say all the time, like, Hey, I mean, I had a great business and was growing and it was like, well, Hey, should I focus here? And I was like, no, but there's this thing I've got to keep doing. Mm. So did that. And then it just kept growing. And I literally, and often when I give this talk, I actually show the email from the New York times because I, it was almost like, I'm not really skipping a lot of things. I did that for a while in total, like no one was watching, like my mom and my sister. And it turns out my sister was lying. Right. So, but then slowly more people noticed and I got an email. I, it turns out a, an advisor named Kent, I always remember because Kent changed my life. An advisor named Kent sent it to, he happened to have some really casual friendship. It's not even a friendship. He just, Ron Lieber at the New York Times would open Kent's emails for some reason. Kent sent it. And I say that because Ron gets a bazillion emails from people yeah. like us. And Kent sent a note saying, hey, you like this, Ron. And I still have that email because it, because the next email was to, from Ron and I, this is the one I show. It says, Hey, we love these. Would you do them for us? And I knew enough at that point in my life to say yes and figure things out later. Yeah. And then there's a whole story behind that, but that's how they first sort of appeared in the times. And then we now October will be 10 years. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So how, how long into your financial planning career were you at that point? So that Dave and Diane meeting, the first like, if you want to call it the first sort of sketch that I drew in front of somebody was 95, 90, probably like two or three years, but it didn't until like the books came out. The first book, I can't even remember. I want to say 2012. Is that, that seems right. So that would have been 12 plus five, seven, you know, 15, 16 years. Huh. Was the behavior gap always the blog where you had them? Was that where it started? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I registered the emotional gap first. And then I was like, ah, I don't know, that sounds a little soft. I don't know what that even means. And then we registered the behavior gap was like, no, it's due to behavior. And you know, every domain was available back then. So yeah, that's, that's where it's been ever since. Now that's just basically come to represent my life's work. Like that's where I, that's my personal homepage, right? Yeah. Okay. So here's what I love about your work. So I've been coaching advisors, independent advisors for 12 years going on 13 now. And one of the hardest things to get them to do, which I know this will be ultra surprising to you, is to simplify the complex. 
I think naturally they want to just dive in like an engineer and start, you know, playing with all the different financial tools and explaining those. And your book does a great job. The one page financial plan. I love, you actually call the first appointment, the same thing I tell advisors to call the first appointment, which is kind of the discovery or the discovery session. So if we can start like 30,000 foot view for these advisors that, I mean, they like to get down into the weeds. A lot of them, how do you zoom out and to go back, simplify the complex. If you don't have the artistic skills that you do as an advisor, what are some core things that you found important there? Yeah. Well, first I have to ask, were you being sarcastic about me finding that surprising? Yes, I was. Oh, okay, good. I just want to make sure. <laughs> good. I just want to make sure. It's a good thing we're on video. You can see me smiling. Now. Yeah. It's not, it's not, not surprising at all. Right. Like it's yeah, the no. thing that no, we... I've dealt with it for 12 years. It hasn't changed. So I get this email all the time from big, like the, the head of training at huge firms that you would all recognize saying, could you come help our advisors learn how to talk to humans? And I, there's a bunch. So I've thought a lot about this. There's a bunch that goes into it. The first thing we need to understand is why. Like the tactical stuff, it should be obvious. Like I have no art skills. Come on. Like I, I, like I took a pottery class when I was eight. You know what I mean? Like, and you should see the, like, the pieces of paper that actually... And when I present live to groups, you know, 100 people to 3,000 people, like they're just a mess. Like when I'm doing them live, this is like 15 takes. Of, and that's what it looks like after like trying... So that stuff's easy. Like the tactical stuff's easy, which we can dive into. I think the mindset's the most important part. I think that the reason that's so hard for so many of us is we're scared. Advisors, we as an advisor community are scared that if we make something too simple, people won't pay for it. Mm. Like there's somehow simplicity represents lack of value. And another way to think about this is to flip it on its head and say, we think we have confused, we think complexity is a sign of intellectual prowess. So there's two ways I see this happening. One is that, that we think complexity shows how smart we are. The second is an old school sales technique that many of us, that if you've been around more than 15 years or so, you were taught. And I think it's still being taught in some parts of the industry. And that complexity is a technique, right? Like you dig a pit throw the client into it and look down and say, I'm the only one with a rope. Complexity being a sign of how hurt you are or digging a pit and throwing somebody. Either one of those, nobody likes to be treated that way. So if you, that's where I started. You just back up and go, how do I like to be treated as a human? Like I'm busy. When I go meet with my attorney, this happened to us. We walked into, we went to meet with our estate planning attorney. My wife and I were going out of town or something for the first time with the kids. This was years ago. And we met, went to meet with an estate attorney who was a friend. Well, at least before this meeting was a friend of ours. And we're sitting, my wife and I were sitting there and he has us fill out the questionnaire in the lobby, like many advisors still do, which we've got to stop. Fill out the question. Nobody likes that. Right. Like you don't like it when you go to the doctor, you hate it when you go to the dentist. And then here we ask people to do it. So we're filling out a questionnaire. We go in. He reviews the questionnaire in front of us. Takes like five minutes without saying a word. Like we're reviews the questionnaire and then goes, okay, you have three options. And as soon as he said three, I was like, this happened with the vet too. I think it's in the one page yeah. plan. As soon as I heard the word three, I was like, ah, and my wife, he starts going into these complex options and my wife interrupts him. It was like, hey, hey, like option two and a half. She's like, whoa, we didn't come here for you to give us options that were unqualified to decide between. We came here for you to understand our situation well enough to tell us what to do. 
right? And I think that, like, we're busy. I'm relatively, I mean, I'm not dumb. I know my way around estate planning stuff, but I didn't want, I just want to be told what to do at the vet, in that book, at the vet. Like, that's even more basic. I just want to be told what to do. So I think that's the, the beginning is understanding how to treat humans. And let me just say one more thing about this. If you understand clients, and I'm going to say this really directly, and I'm hoping that it feels challenging and then that, that people can sort of work with it a bit. So don't reject it out of hand. Let it sit and see how it feels. Clients do not care. They don't I get hundreds of emails a week from them because they're the ones reading the New York Times. They do not care about your solutions. They don't. They don't care about your solutions. They care about their problems. Mm. And when you walk in, you think that someone cares, that you're smart and that you know this stuff backwards and forwards. And so I think that's the other, the more benign version of this is just a natural progression. As you move along in the industry, any industry, attorneys are guilty of this, that any industry, as you get smarter and smarter and more and more experienced, you think someone cares. Now, I, I don't mean they don't, like, they care that you know, but they don't want to know. They just don't. So if you can get to the heart of their problems, spend your time on understanding their problems, the solution, the prescription is easy. The prescription can be on one page. It, last point, think about a doctor. I had a doctor friend of mine who was a client who pointed this out to me because I was going into like a 75 point bullet point presentation with 12 point Michael Kitsis style. Okay. <laughs> and Kitsis and I are good friends. So it's okay for me to beat up on him a little bit, like seven point font with like pages and pages of stuff. I was going into this to present to him. And he's like, Carl, whoa, he interrupts me like my wife did. Interrupts me and says, Hey, last time you brought your daughter to the emergency room and I was on, I was on that day. What did you leave with? I was like, well, I left with uh, my daughter. Like, that was cool. He's like, no, but I also left with a piece of paper with some scribbles on it that I couldn't even read. He's like, what did you do with it? So I went to another place and I gave it to them, a bunch of scary people in white coats. And they made me sign a document that said, like, if she grew a third arm, it didn't matter. And then I filled the prescription, right? Took the prescription home and gave it to my daughter. He's like, well, you didn't get a second opinion? Like, no, you didn't Google? No. He's like, could you just write me the prescription? The only reason you can write a prescription that someone can't read is if they feel thoroughly diagnosed. But if you don't feel thoroughly diagnosed, you get a second opinion, you Google, right? But if you feel thoroughly diagnosed, you just fill the prescription. And so all I'm saying is instead of trying to appear smart, spend all that time and energy training, you know, practice, listening, asking good questions and listening. I think that's the beginning, like the other stuff, like how do you draw and blah, it, it, who cares? Like, can we just get the mindset right that no one cares about your solutions, they care about their problems and you need to get better at understanding people's problems. Yeah, yeah. So if you're listening and an advisor out there, like go back and re-listen to that last five minutes because I, on my side, coaching advisors for over a decade, it's like, I don't know what happens when you become an advisor. I, the analogy I've made is it's kind of like being an emergency room doctor that's no longer gets squeamish at the sight of blood. I think we're a bit calloused because we see the same problems over and over and we create the same solutions over and over where we forget these are human beings walking in, sharing their, their deepest, darkest secrets around money that they probably haven't shared with anyone, including their own kids. 
And we just treat them like, oh, fill out this questionnaire, you know, like very mechanical. And your point in the book, you mentioned it's more like a therapy session than it is a session with a financial advisor. And I found the very best advisors, that's exactly the way they approach it. You know, they're asking meaningful questions and then listening, not spewing out a bunch of information, right? So can we go into the formation of your question that you... You formulated over years in this business that you would open kind of this discovery session with the very first appointment and why you settled on that question. Yes, it's really important to understand that that I stole all this. And I, I mean that carefully, right? Like the better way to say this would be like, I'm standing on the shoulders of people who did it long before me. So Bill Backrack teaches a lesson and Bill's still around doing yeah. amazing work. Yeah. And so if you're interested in this stuff, that's where I would go. Bill has this amazing question now, and and Bill, I learned it from Bill from his book, and then I also learned it from John Bowen. So, and John Bowen's the one that taught me the word the discovery meeting, right? And I know attorneys have been using that forever. So, no one, I other well, now that I know it came from John Bowen, I'm not interested. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, no one. I don't know that anybody can claim credit for any of these yeah. things, but I, but I do know that that's where I learned what's important about money to you is Bill or John's question. I believe Bill's. And I'm not a question zealot. And Bill, rightfully so, teaches a way to do it and he doesn't deviate from it. And it's awesome. And I'm glad. I'm not that way. I'm more just like, if I were starting my firm again, I would spend the bulk of my time getting really good at that first meeting and I would find questions that work for me. So Bill's question, Simon Sinek. So what happened to me is Bill's question what's important about money bashed up against Simon Sinek's work. You know, I, I was reading Sinek's work. I'm like, wow, this question of why, like start with why is so good. And about that same time, I ran across Dan Sullivan at the Strategic Coach. He actually has a book called The Dan Sullivan Question, which is another great one. Dan Sullivan, who was a colleague of mine for a period of time, he wrote a book called The Smartest, yeah, the Smartest Sales Book You'll Ever Need. And in there, he talks about his, his opening question is, what brought you in today? So it doesn't really matter. But for me, it was Backrack and Simon Sinek running into each other. And so I, I would ask this question. And this is like three to five minutes into the first time I've ever met someone in my office. So none of this, hey, Brad, what do your kids do? Oh, cute. My kids play rugby too. Oh, that's awesome. You know, like, like none of that. And I'm doing that sarcastically. I know right. that. But none of that. If you start with the premise that the goal of the first meeting is to build trust, like that's, that's a reasonable, well-intentioned goal is to build trust. That's why I think most of us in, our, in this industry do the 15 minutes of like, look at my diplomas. We have the biggest, we have the biggest computers. We manage X in assets. We have 49,000 clients. Like that's why I think we do that. And it's totally misinformed. And I'm going to make another really direct statement. Like it's flat out, it's doing damage. And here's the reason. I realize that's direct. And I'm just asking you to sort of play with it a bit, right? Like is somebody walks into your office for a first meeting. They're a prospective client. They come to your office for a first meeting. Unless you live someplace where the laws are different than me, they did that of their own free will. Now you just have to remember what they had to overcome to do that to realize the position you're in. They came to talk to you about money. They don't talk to anyone about money. And they came to talk to you. And I just mean you part of that industry that they've read about, right? They overcame both those barriers and they're still there. 
you've done something right to earn that position. Now I know they walked in with their hands on their wallets. Like you're not going to get this from me. That's why I think you need to, we need to stop with that. Like, here's how great I am. Think about going on a first date and the person at the other, and most of the women listening to this will have actually, unfortunately had this experience of listening to somebody talk about themselves for the first half, first hour of the first date. There's no second date. Imagine going to meet with an attorney, a brain surgeon is my favorite example. Your eight-year-old daughter needs brain surgery. You go to meet with the brain surgeon and they spend the first 20 minutes talking about how sharp the scalpels are and where they went to medical school and 689 people and only two have died, right? Like, like our nurses are the best. We clean our instruments. Like what would they, you would say, oh my gosh, there's something wrong. I got to find a new surgeon. Mm-hmm. So I just say, start from that position of professional confidence and then give people like, like shock people. We want them to be confused by the grace, right? That they walked into a place. And for the first time in their lives, I, I actually get emotional about this because I've been through this with so many people. They've never had a safe place to just be asked good questions about money. They're scared to death. They're not going to tell you that. And even the, you know, whatever high powered bro that thinks he's so cool. He's scared to death. He's even more scared. That's what all that's about. So if you can just say, ah, oh, Brad, thanks for coming in today. It really shows how committed you are to making good decisions with money. Let's start with a question. I'm going to ask you both this question. And it's the only question today that you can't help each other on. So you sort of got to answer independently. And then you, you have made a judgment decision already, which one's the more verbally dominant. That's not always the breadwinner, by the way. Which one's the more verbally dominant? And you start with the one that's the least verbally dominant. And you just say, Brad, why is money important to you? Now, you could say, Dan Sullivan, Brad, if we were meeting three years from now, what would have to happen over the next three years for you to feel like this has been a success? And Dan Sullivan says, use the date, right? If, if we were meeting, whatever, June 14th, 2021, 2022, what, what would have to happen for you to feel successful? The last three years have been a success. I say, why is money important to me? Client says something like almost always freedom or flexibility. Just like, get me out of this. Yeah. I was going to ask you if I'm going too long, but I don't really care because it's too bad. No, you're good. Keep rolling. So so what's happening here is any of these questions, you've got to feel, the reason this is scary is because it's, you've got to feel comfortable with something that you're not, you're comfortable talking and telling everybody how smart you are, but you're not comfortable. You got to show up with a little vulnerability yourself. That vulnerability is in the fact they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Like, and that's the sign. I used to take that as a sign that I'd done something wrong. It's the sign that you've done something right. Like when you ask a good question, a good question by definition is something somebody hasn't been asked before. So they'll say, oh, sometimes they'll mask that because they don't want to be vulnerable. They'll be like, oh, this is dumb. I've had people say that. That's like, I'm not, hey, man, I'm not here for your therapy session. I've had somebody say that. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I didn't, I must've misstated that. And then I go back and say the same thing. Like, let's start again, Brad. Why is money important to you? So that uncomfortable nature of it, lean into it. Don't fill that space. It's a sign you're on the right track. Somebody says freedom, flexibility. And then you just keep digging. Oh, that's interesting, Brad. Tell me a little bit more about freedom. I'll give you a real example. Her name was Julie. Julie, I think it's in the book. I can't remember. I changed people's names to try and protect them. Her actual name is Julie. So whatever the story is, it's probably Kathy or something in the book. It's the same story. 
Julie, without knowing your last name, Julie is a hard charging emergency room doctor, managing partner of the biggest emergency department in the town I lived in at the time. And it, you know, most of your advisors in the States, they know like how competitive that field is like this. Julie's got to be on it. I said, Julie, what's important about money to you? Her husband, Steve's there. And Julie says, looks a little like, Hey, you know, they'd come into the big brokerage firm with a bull as a symbol. Like they were like, what do you got for me, kid? Like right. what's your performing, you know, whatever. And next thing they know, they're like, Julie's like, ah, whatever. I can't remember what she said. I think she said freedom. I was like, okay. Freedom or security normally comes first. And that in and of itself is a really interesting thing. Don't make too much of it, but it's interesting to see somebody says security versus freedom. It tells you something, I think. I said, okay, tell me a little bit more, Julie, about freedom. And my goal in these first meetings was someone was going to cry and it wasn't going to be me, right? (laughs) And so I tell me a little bit more about freedom. Like, what does that mean? Oh, Carl, I just want a little flexibility. There was pauses and some uncomfortable shifting and just want a little flexibility. Oh, okay. That could mean a lot of things to a lot of people, Julie. Like, let's clarify a little bit. And then just write back. Why is flexibility important to you? Longer pause. Right? Uncomfortable looking at Steve, like, save me. She says with a little emotion, gosh, I just want some time. Okay, so hard charging ER doctor, you know, medical school, residency, you know, da, 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 da. I just want some time. And I haven't even, like, I just I also want some time. I'm like, okay, time, that, that's really important. And if it's okay later, we'll put some parameters around that and define it and we'll call it a goal. But for now, let's assume you're there. You've got all the, like, we've met that goal. You've got all the time that you mean when you say you want some time. Why? Right back. Like, why is that important? And Julie, longer pause, gets emotional and says, Carl, I just want to have a family. And I haven't even had time to think about it. And I'm like, and that's a relatively dramatic example, but of the hundreds of times I've done this, most of them aren't that far off. Some of them, no one cried. Like the greatest generation guys, you know, that were like, I want to serve in my community and take care of my kids. They didn't cry, but it was just as important to them. Julia, like, how could I have helped? Like, we're seven minutes into our meeting. Would that have come out in your risk tolerance questionnaire? Right. <laughs> right. And how could I have helped Julie without it? Right. So yeah. that's, again, not a zealot about the question, but that's what we're trying to get to is to say, so I can look Julie in the eyes and say, Julie, would it be okay if everything we did together was sort of through that lens of giving you the flexibility, the, the freedom, the flexibility, the time to, have the time to ultimately have the family. Is that okay? And she, of course, was like, yeah. Now she didn't come in. And I knew by the look on Steve's face that I don't know that they knew that. That's like one of the most valuable things an advisor could ever offer is goal clarification. Don't use those words, but with in front of a client, right? But they didn't know. So you've just clarified something that they didn't even really know. What's that worth? right? Like forget the rest of the work you're going to do. What was that experience worth? I'm sure they walked to the car and were like, what's just happened to us, right? Versus when they go to meet with your competitor, who's going to say, you want blue? Oh, you don't like blue. I've got green. You don't like green. I've got pink, right? So anyway, enough about that. Sorry. I think the best advisors, when I really deconstruct it, it's basically they are therapists that just so happen to talk about relationships around money, right? And that's, the very best. And you hit a lot of things there, Carl. Number one is 
And I would just want to go back and rewind these because these are really important things I run into all the time that I think advisors glance over sometimes. If they came into your office, how much work it took them just to get there? Because oftentimes what I'll run into, you know, we're all about the analytics and tracking your results from your marketing and your ROIs. But sometimes people will discount say, oh, they just weren't a good prospect. And they won't actually self-assess and say, wait, maybe I'm just not very good at running appointments to pull out what people need. Right. And so I think when you just start just writing off people that they weren't good fits, I think sometimes you need to go back and re-examine if they came into your office and they were qualified, right? That had the asset level where you could help them. Maybe it means you need to tweak your appointment process if you're seeing that happen over and over without the results of them coming on as clients. And so I think a lot of times advisors just dismiss people like, oh, that was a do-it-yourselfer or whatever. The other thing that I caught there that you said that's really interesting, I want you to, to dive into a little bit. You separately ask each spouse independently the questions. And you also started with probably the less dominant from your read as far as who was speaking up the most. Talk about the power of that and why that's important, if you don't mind. I know advisors who will be like, I won't meet with... Well, actually, most advisors right, like, don't even think about this, but there are some advisors who've thought about it and said, I won't meet with you unless you're both there. And, and I, I admire that. And I think that's, that can be a great practice. I wasn't dogmatic about it. I would encourage it. But if somebody was super busy and they needed help, like I just start from a place of like, how can I help? Yeah. How can I be helpful? So ideally, they're both there. And ideally, you learn how to communicate with you work on and i think you're really right like that first meeting you practice and you get training like i would record these with permission i would record these and then listen to them afterwards and be like oh do i really do that you know like i'd still watch re-listen to my podcast interviews and like do i really hit the table and the whole camera moves you know like i just did you know like like that kind of stuff so i think you learn like so anyway i think having both spouses there i think understanding that once spouse may appear disinterested, how could they be disinterested? Well, think about it this way too. If you're a therapist, are you going to sit there and talk to one spouse the whole time? Yeah. No. But yeah. what you see, you see that happen in financial services all the time where the guy talks to the guy, right? And I think that's one of the key elements. Female advisors, when you look at, you know, when I started out, it was like one out of a hundred maybe was a female advisor. And now that is massively growing. Some of our most successful, our highest growth offices are female offices. And it's because they're treating them like real human beings and having a conversation with, with both sides and actually asking these questions that require thoughts, right? Yeah. Like I think the other thing that you hit on is when you ask a great question, you shouldn't be able to respond immediately because it actually requires you to think about it. And yeah. so that's kind of the theme I'm hearing as well is you're almost going into it like a private investigator trying to get to the root cause. And when they give you surface level answers, you're like, well, why is that? Let's go deeper and deeper and deeper until we get to the yeah. root. And I, that could be, become just a really fun game. Like I think of it as an academic trying to solve a problem. Like some of my favorite questions are what you just said. Oh, I love listening. Brian Koppelman has this great podcast called The Moment. And you'll hear him in the middle of conversations and he'll go, keep going. Right. Or he'll say, go deeper. Like you just said, it's just simply saying, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Oh, why? Like we just accept, like clients will say to you, like, what, what's your goals? I need 5 million by retirement. Like sometimes clients will come in that prepared and you, oh, 5 million by retirement. You never took, all I'm saying is like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me why. Well, that's cool. How did you arrive at that number? 
Oh, why would that be important? Like just die, just asking more questions. And yeah, I think uh, just the female advisor thing, I've been so grat. Like we have a long ways to go, but my experience with women advisors is they don't seem to have a problem engaging men in conversations <laughs> and they don't just put blue on it, right? Like it's not, so from the male perspective, it's not just like nothing drove me crazy. We, I think we've gotten past this, I hope. But yeah, like 10 years ago, it was like, oh, we just make it more female. Like, no, that, that's not the, that's not even close. It's just engaging. In this case, I can think of plenty of cases where it wasn't, it had nothing to do with emotion, more or less emotional. And not, not all the standard garbage that we used to think, all it had to do with is like, could you engage with them as a human? Yeah. Like, and maybe there's a non-dominant spouse. In this case, Steve was the non-dominant spouse. He, he was the one that was the most talkative, but he was the non-dominant in terms of breadwinner. Like Julie clearly made the money, clearly made the decisions. But for whatever reason, she didn't feel like speaking up in that meeting. And so that's why I engaged her first. I just got that sense mainly from walking from the foyer to the office, right? Like I didn't have any, I just guessed. But Steve appeared disinterested. Like when I asked him, he was like, I just want to golf more. Right. And I was like, well, did you not just hear what just happened between your wife? Like she just said something about a family. I don't know if you heard that part, but engaging Steve in the level that obviously he's interested. So learning, and I can just think of so many stories about spouses, whether they're male or female. And unfortunately, we have a stereotype that it's typically the female that seems less interested. It's just not true. Mm. And we need to change that and we need to get better at it. But whatever spouse, I can tell you hundreds of stories of spouses that appeared not interested. And then when you engage them, you find out why. Can I just tell you, let me just tell you one real quick. Like this is so important. I'll make it quick. This was um, Courtney Pullen tells this story. Courtney was working with somebody. Courtney's like like a coach to advisors and particularly like high end families that really are sorting through like the psychological pieces of extreme wealth. And he was tells this story about how there was a CEO of a of a public company. They had a, a, a vacation home in Hawaii, and the wife wanted to buy a new home, a new vacation home. And the husband was like, well, we can't afford a new vacation home. And so the, the husband and the advisor like got in cahoots, like, you need to talk to my wife. And when we come in, you need to make it clear. And, and the advisor, Courtney, first, I don't, I don't remember the story about how they connected, but Courtney was around and the advisor asked Courtney, like, hey, how would you handle this? He's like, well, has anybody asked the wife? Has anybody said why? What, what are you thinking? Help us understand. Huh. So the next meeting... They do that. The advisor says, hey, help me understand this a bit. This, this kills me. The wife says, hey, she's like, of course I know. Because the concern was, we already have one in Hawaii. They were thinking, we have one in Hawaii and we want to buy another one. And she was like, of course I know we can't afford another one. We're going to sell the Hawaii house because when we built the Hawaii, all the kids and I remember is you being angry. Because when we built that and all the years we'd been going, you were under so much pressure that we'd go there as a, it was like, I need to escape. And we'd get there and all we saw was you impatient and angry. And so I want to start a new chapter in vacation homes for our family. Like, can you imagine? I, every time I think about that story, I think, how did we not take the time? And the husband now, of course, is like, oh my gosh, of course. 
Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Advisor, make this happen. Right? Like that's an example of a non-engaged situation. Again, we, and that's one case where, you know, Steve was the non-engaged partner. In this case, the the wife was the non-engaged partner. Either way, what would be wrong with just treating him like a human and asking some questions? Yeah. I just go back. I, I don't think it's from lack of want to. I don't want this to be like where we're beating up financial advisors because we work with incredible people that, that really do care. But it goes back to your statement that I wrote down right here. The client or the prospect, they don't care about your solutions. They care about their problems. And oftentimes we're so worried about our solutions, we don't actually uncover what their problems are. I mean, I've had, I can think multiple times where advisors will call in and we'll help them actually build the plan on our side, right? So we're marrying insurance planning with asset management. And they'll be like, hey, I've got a great prospect. They've got a million bucks. They'll give me like the details. They'll be like, what should I do with it? And I'm like, well, what problems do they have? What are you trying to solve here? Uh, And it's just this blank pause. And it's because they never actually got to the core of what they were trying to do with that money. Money is just a tool, right? That helps you do certain things in life. And they never got to that far into the conversation where they figured that out. And so, and that's just so important for like all of you listening, like you have a really hard job and this is all, everything we're talking about here is just human nature. Yeah. Right. Of course you're excited because you know, the reason that you care about your solutions is because you want to help people. Like you've seen it before. You, you want to jump in. How quickly can I solve this? We do this in our marriages all the time. Like we think that that's our job is to solve the problem. And what people really want to hear is that we just forget. And it's so easy to forget. Like I do it all the time. The best advisors I know do it all the time and they just have to remind themselves. So I'm just sort of begging you gently. Like I've been a little, I like to balance drill sergeants and empathetic, right? Like I like to get up in people's faces and then say, Hey, but I also know how hard it is. So all I'm asking you gently to do is just like, just remind yourself of the humanity of the work you're doing and just pause and go. And I love that. Like, you can go into it. my friend Ben here in New Zealand. He works with advisors and he, he likes to say, what are you solving for? And actually colleague of mine here at Behavior Gap, Jacqueline, she's always asking, well, because I'll say, I want to do this. And she'll pause and go, hey, cool, but what are we solving for? And I think that idea of just stopping and saying, hey, what's the problem here? And let's get really clear. And that's a skill and it involves vulnerability and and to a large degree going into a first meeting sort of naked, like you don't have 12 PowerPoint slides. Like that's a new skill. And I'm just saying, could you just slowly start to engage with that skill? Because I actually think to be a little drill sergeant D, I think it's going to be the only value left. And the interesting piece about our industry is you need to do that and be technically competent, like a technical pro, which I think we have probably almost everybody listening to this has got that piece nailed. Mm -hmm. And now we just have to engage a little bit with that art piece. That's so uncomfortable. We often didn't sign. Most of us didn't sign up to be marriage counselors. Yeah. Are there tools, Carl? Like I just go back to that emergency room doctor. You do the same things over and over. Sometimes you just get in like one, two, three, like you're just building Lego blocks over and over and you're not realizing each individual comes in with these fears and concerns. Are there any tricks that you've seen advisors over the years use where they can get present and really get down to the core of, hey, this individual I'm meeting with, I could change not only their life, but their kids' lives, their grandkids' lives, where they have something they do before appointments to get them in that state of mind? 
Yeah, I think it's similar to, I like the doctor analogy, um, that great, the checklist manifesto book by Atul Gawande. That, um, I think that idea of a, of a pre-meeting checklist, I, I also think it's kind of cool to think of it as a pre-meeting ritual mm-hmm. where you just sit down for a second and reconnect with that. And maybe you write a couple of things that are meaningful to you. I've seen advisors who do this. Like, remember, they don't care about your solutions. They care about their problems. Like, what am I trying to solve for? Treat this person like my mom. You know, like, like whatever, some meaningful things to you, you reconnect. So that's one, like pre-meeting ritual to sort of reconnect and get present. Almost like a, you know, 30 second meditation on like, I mean, I love to think about it. Like, what a sacred blessing you have to be engaged in this process. I don't know very many things that are more human than this unfortunate, it's just the world we live in, but this unfortunate relationship we have with money. And then I think there's the post. Post would be really engaged in the process of feedback. Like if whether you have a coach or your assistant or a group of advisors in the office, I would create a ritual around feedback. And so an easy way to do this would be say, look, we're going to have a meeting once a week. And let's say there's no advisors in your office and you, oh, fine, find like three or four other advisors outside of your office, like colleagues, whatever. We're going to meet once a week and each of us are going to bring, you know, as much as we have time. So one, two, three, first meeting, two, and we're going to, if you record them, which that can get tricky because that makes you even more scared. And sometimes it makes the client, I've never had it make the clients uncomfortable, but I understand advisors fear around that. But if you don't record them, walk out of the meeting. As soon as they leave, go sit back down in the conference room, open up your voice memo app on your phone and record what happened. Record the impressions, record the questions you asked. Did they go well? Did they not go well? Just think about this as like your golf swing and then bring that to a meeting, a sort of post-op meeting where you sit down and get a little feedback. Yeah, cool. All right, so let's dive into, well, first of all, I just have to bring up this quote because I love it and it speaks to the power of a plan. So it's page 53 in your book. It's the quote from Alice in Wonderland. Do you remember it or do you want me to read it? If you can can freestyle it, I'm going to be super impressed. Um, It depends on where you're going. Uh, yes. Would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. So the whole concept of having a plan and the power of the plan, how do you start to frame that for a client? Because it is, if you don't know where you're going, well, Anywhere will take you there, right? So as you start to go through, and I know you unpacked asking the why behind that, let's keep going down that path and helping the client understand why they need to plan in the first place. Because I think sometimes clients don't even understand that when they first walk in. Yeah. And and be be sort of aware too, that they don't even like the word plan. Mm. Like humans don't like the word plan, mainly because Oh, geez, there's so much we could say here. So let me just, I think a a couple of things, mainly because we've, I think we're coming to a growing realization. This is happening in other industries a lot faster than it's happening in ours, where people are coming to this growing realization that plans are worthless without the ongoing process of planning. And so you see this, I was just reading, I spent a lot of time studying entrepreneurship and, and I was just reading 
about one of my favorite venture capitalists said that his favorite thing to do now when he gets pitch books and he'll do it right in front of the founders that are coming to seek money, he'll flip to the projection section of the pitch book and he tears them out and throws them away. Right. Like, and so I think this idea we've sold, there's a false sense of precision in our industry. And again, I understand where it comes from. Humans, if there's one thing we dislike more than anything else, it's uncertainty. And we think we've been sort of taught as humans that a plan will reduce uncertainty. And it's, it's simply not true. It, it gives us a tool to engage with reality, but it doesn't change reality. And so if we understand that the only thing we know for sure about the plan, the financial plan, this document that we call the finance, the only thing we know for sure is that it's wrong. We just don't know how. I think using that kind of understanding, I just, this is my big kick of mine. Like I'm forcibly inserting this opinion into into the industry. And that is that we're financial planning has to change. And I call it reality-based financial planning. What if we just did reality-based financial planning? And you can look at other industries, the lean startup world, software development, sort of shifting from waterfall, which is where you did all this development and then boom, the product to agile, where you make a tweak, change, see, Mm -hmm. turns out that we work in a complex adaptive system. And complex means you do a, it goes through this big thing and you don't know what's going to come out. That's somebody's life, right? We don't know for sure that you do a and you get B and we know for sure it goes through this system that we don't really understand. Adaptive means that our interaction with the system changes the system. Right. So like just whenever we move, reality moves too, right? Like we're so the only way to solve for a complex adaptive system is to take the next step and then reset. In the literature, you call it solve for the next local optimum. Right. So it's make a plan. So we still plan. We just release the pressure. So I use the word gets. Like, oh, Julie. You know, you want to, you, you flexibility, time, freedom, blah, blah, to have a family. Let's go back to what you said earlier. Let's, let's put some framework around this. This is exactly how I would have said it. Let's put some framework around this a bit. And, and in fact, we'll even use a word for some of this framework we're going to build. We're just going to use the word, if it's okay with you, I just like to use the word goal. That's exactly how I would say it. People, as soon as they hear word goal and plan, just, whoa, because they think you're going to ask them what their utility bills are going to be 17 and a half years from now. I've heard that. Like the public tells me, I don't want to see a planner. They're going to ask me what my utility bills are 17 and a half years from. So we just say, we're going to use this word called goal, relax. And this is exactly what I say. Relax, it's a guess. What would it have to look like? Remember she said time. What would it have to look like in order for you to have the time? You mentioned time earlier. What would it have to look like in order for you to have the time to focus on having a family? Let's put some parameters around that. Well, I'd do this, my partners would have to be on board. Oh, what would have to happen there? I'd have to ask. That's not a financial goal, but it leads to a goal. Oh, so you need to have a conversation with your partners about this. Okay, good. That's a goal. Cool. Um, how much we would need to be on track for retirement. Okay. Well, I can help you calculate that. All right. Da-da-da-da. We put some framework. We put some framework around the goals. Their guesses. Relax. Right. Then, and if you understand this process, it's shifting the weight from the plan to the process. It's shifting the weight from the product to the relationship, right? This doesn't become an event. It becomes an ongoing process. So I like to think in 90 day segments, like here's what we're going to work on for the next 90 days, right? 
And the other analogy I'll use quickly is pilots, right? Every pilot I know, every time I meet a pilot, I ask them two questions. The first one is, do you do a flight plan, a detailed flight plan for every flight? And the answer without, actually with one exception who I'd never fly with, the answer has always been yes. The second question is, how often does the flight go according to the plan? And the answer is never. So if we can understand that process of like, okay, we're still going to build this plan, but we're flexible. Then when we get phone calls about, I got to get out of the market, we can, we have something to go back to. Hey, remember you told me, you know, da, 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 and that involves time and, and on track for retirement. And, and are we still all on the same page? Yeah, we are. Okay, cool. Now we have something to talk about, about why you want to get out of the market. If your goals haven't changed, right? Like we have a framework to bring them back to. And that plan becomes an ongoing document, like a touchstone to bring them out of the, the scary stuff back. If you don't have that in place, and if it doesn't resonate deeply with them, it's really hard to get them to say no to poor behavior. Yeah, I want to, where is it? Right here. Here you go. So whatever this print's named, that's kind of in your, your scribble. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I think, so for those that are just listening on audio, it's a straight line where you are today on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side, where do you want to go? And in the middle, how do you get there, right? So a great plan is that middle portion. And the, the very best offices we work with, going back to the, where this all started, simplifying the complex, number one, they understand what exactly that they want to solve for, Right. And then they have a plan that's simplified, not getting down in the weeds. I think you actually even use this word snapshot in your book. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times that's the framing they'll use in the second visit after the first discovery session where they say, hey, we're kind of taking a 30,000 foot view. We're going to look at a snapshot. Here's where you are today. Here's where you said you want to go. We haven't built a full plan yet for you because you haven't asked us to. But looking at two or three strategies that we've used in the past with other people that had a similar issue here's where we think we could go with it, right? And they're really oversimplifying it where a lot of offices, they'll start pulling out, oh, here's the three asset managers we're going to use. Here's the annuities for the income. And that just completely derails everything because back to your, the average person, this is like anxiety to them. They are now trying to make decision points on like seven different things that they don't even understand at the core level. So can you speak to maybe that unpacking of, Here's where you are today. Here's where you want to go. The middle ground of the very best advisors, how they bridge that. Yeah, you just, I think you have to remember if people know that you know the problem, if people feel thoroughly diagnosed, they don't really, like, I never believe this. I got told this by a, a mentor named Gary. Remember Gary telling me, Carl, no, you're going to have clients who are never going to even know what asset manager they're using or how they're never, if you understand the problem, they won't even want to know the details. Now I know, you know, like we're going to explain it to them in compliance and there's going to be disclosures and all that stuff. But just believe me, if you understand the problem, they don't really need to know the details about the solution. So I think what else happens there is, and it's really important to understand, those advisors who bring out the doc, I understand where that's coming from. It's a well-intentioned belief that like, hey, you got to understand and I'm trying to help you. And But what happens is people want to argue. I've seen this over and over. We specifically in all my writing, we try to remove Footnotes, references, data, and studies. <laughs> That's the opposite of what everybody else tries to do. Because I find if we include that, people want to argue about the data and they miss the point. So for clients, people want to argue about the solutions. 
And they missed the fact that we understood the problem in the first place. Yes. All right. So we're getting towards the end here, and I've got to ask you a few philosophical questions, which hopefully we can get to. We'll have to go through these pretty quick. So the first one I want to dive into is you're now located in New Zealand, um, Mm -hmm. and you didn't used to be. You used to be a United States resident. So tell me what happened. Why did that come to be? Yeah, my my wife is why that came to be. Um, Actually, the reality is we had always we've been married well twenty twenty four years in a couple of in a week or so, and for the whole time we've been married, my wife particularly had wanted to spend some time outside the country for no specific reason, just like wanted to have the experience. And so we looked for opportunities here and there, and an opportunity opened up. And we, I mean, it's a long story, but we were going to go someplace in Europe, and it just didn't work. Like we kept trying and it didn't work. And somebody's like, you should go to New Zealand. And we'd never been Mm -hmm. 10 days later from that suggestion, 10 days later, we had plane tickets. I mean, not to leave 10 days later, but 10 days later, we had purchased the plane tickets to leave 90 days later. If you had asked us, that's why I think this whole planning, like if you think you know where you're going to be 12 years from now, let alone 35, just go look at the, like, go be honest with yourself. If you, if you journal, go back and look at your journal three years ago. Like if you had told us we were going to live in New Zealand 75 days before we landed here, it would have never even crossed our minds, but that's why we're here. And we're, we like to joke, we're three years into a one-year trip. We're just, we're just enjoying ourselves. We plan on just being over here a year. We're just enjoying ourselves. We, we've loved it here. New Zealand's amazing. We've met some amazing people when we're learning a lot and we're apparently not done learning from the experience yet. Well, what's that meant for your family? Just your family dynamic and being out of the U S and it's been amazing. And it's, and again, I, it's really hard, especially from a U.S. perspective. If you talk about the benefits of living somewhere else, people feel like you're saying that it's wrong to live there. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying it's certainly fascinating to see other parts of the world. And we've learned so much from here, Australia, Southeast Asia, the people we run into, like we meet people every, almost every day, but certainly every week from all these other countries that are traveling through. Turns out people travel, right? Like they have passports and they go places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, do, yeah. Do you find people more present and more aware in New Zealand or is it the same bustle that you find in the US as well? Oh, uh, I think there's two, those are two different questions. Like the present and aware piece, I, I don't know. I do think that there is undoubtedly, okay, well, you gotta, we've got to preface this. I live on the South Island of New Zealand in a small town. There's a million and a half people on this whole island. Mm-hmm. Like, there are 7 million sheep. That's true. I just hope there's no, no revolt. Like I'm still waiting for like the sheep to knock on the door. Like, Hey man, <laughs> out. <laughs> but so we're like, uh, this is in Auckland, right? But here there's definitely a static, a lack of static that I didn't feel in, in the States. Like there is, there is a sense like, and there's good to that. Like there's good to the this hustle, bustle, move fast. We solve some of the world's problems because of that. It's amazing. But seeing the other side of it's interesting too. Cool. Being a guy that's written a few books, would you mind sharing what's your favorite book, what it meant to you, or maybe there's a most gifted book that you've had over the years besides your own? Oh, geez. Uh, I'm trying to think through, you know what? This is kind of a crazy example, but the, I, I'll give you the book that I've recently read, Pam Houston who's a memoirist, which I have never read. Like I've never met a memoir in my life. I mean, I've read a couple of biographies, but I've never read like more. She just wrote a book called Deep Creek, which was the, it's the last book I can remember that was over an inch thick. 
that I finished. Hmm. It was just a really interesting exploration of a woman who bought a ranch that she couldn't afford in Creed, Colorado, and the hardship of something you care deeply about in the world. So that was an amazing book. All right, Carl. Well, I just want to say thank you. This conversation definitely lived up to my expectations. There's so much in here to unpack for advisors out there that's going to help them a ton as they're navigating prospects, that first visit, and all that goes into building a successful plan. So thanks for bringing your knowledge and your work to the podcast today. Love the conversation. Mm, it was amazing. Let me just let me wrap with this. Like, Please understand the work, both the work that you do, but more importantly, frankly, than the work you and I do, the work that, that you're doing, you know, sort of listener, watcher, viewer, I guess, you're changing the world. Like, and I know we get, we get the crap beat out of us sort of publicly sometimes. I know it can be lonely work as a real financial advisor, right? It can be lonely because everybody, nobody knows what the difference is between a real one and a fake one. But please keep doing it because more than ever, people are walking around anxious and worried about money and the only place they have to go is you. So please keep doing it. Please keep pushing. Please keep finding the edge. Please, please keep being... This is important, right? In this age of like automated investment stuff and fast calculators and should we even use the word robo? Like, please go the other direction, right? Like, please be more human. That's what we need in the world. So thanks, Brad, for the work you do to make that possible. Truer uh, words have never been spoken, Carl. It's all about connection in this business. So thanks. And uh, when you're in the States, if you're anywhere close to the Midwest, look me up. We'll connect. Amen. Thank you. All right. We'll see you. Thanks for checking out the latest show on to this week's featured reviews. This week's first review comes to us from Bench D who says, incredible guests and insight, five stars. Working in the financial services industry, I always appreciate Brad's insight and ability to make the topic relevant to our field. The list of guests is incredible, and there's always at least one game-changing nugget of information in each episode. I enjoy Brad's down-to-earth interviewing style and look forward to future episodes. Keep up the great work. Dave, always awesome reading a review from someone I've gotten the chance to interact with personally. Love the work that you and Adam are doing out in Ohio. Uh, it's actually crazy to think how we all met years ago after a few DMs exchanged out on Twitter. So funny how the world works. For those of you financial advisors aspiring to write a book someday, you should go buy a copy of Adam's book, Off the Record. One of the best financial advisor books I've read and great example of how to actually make finance interesting for your clients and prospects. So go check it out. Also, for those of you all listening in that aren't aware of the incredible FinTwit community out on Twitter, you're completely missing out. There are some absolutely incredible minds freely sharing their work you should be diving into conversations with. Too many to name, but just a few of my favorites, Daniel Crosby, who's been on the show, Ian Castle, Jim O'Shaughnessy, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who also has an incredible podcast, Taylor Schulte, uh, Justin Castelli, Reformed Broker... Uh, Josh Brown, Michael Kitsis. I've got a list of a few of them in the show notes, but uh, with their handles, if you want to go join the, that community. But um, I've taken a lot from those guys, learned a lot from those guys. So definitely some great follows out on Twitter. Next review comes to us from user Elmore C, who says, new loyal follower, five stars, advisor turned wholesaler. Information shared routinely resonates with me on a professional and personal level. Professionally, I started listening when I began my career in financial services in 2017. 
working with one of the largest, if not the largest brokerage firms in the US. I found that their training was limited when it came to the most important part of the job, which was having meaningful connections with your clients. I've gained more knowledge on that topic here than anywhere else. This has become an absolute must listen whenever a new episode is available. Thanks so much for the kind words in the review. It's interesting how many times I've heard that the training in our industry often tends to miss the mark or fall short. You know, it's often focused on technicalities and details of financial products versus asking the right questions and listening in order to deeply understand your clients' issues and concerns when it comes to finance. So I'm glad to hear the show is helping you and other advisors out there bridge that gap. And thanks so much for listening in. And hopefully this episode with Carl Richards really helped you out even more on that front as we obviously did a deep dive there as well. And the last featured review for the week comes to us from BC Lowry, who says, raise your game, five stars. I've been listening to Bradley Johnson for over a year, and he and his guests have really opened my mind about how to build a great business. This is a second career for me, and this show is like a master's class for financial planning and advice. Even better, the shows are always entertaining. BC Lowry, always awesome to hear from a longtime listener. So thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts on the show. Uh, love to hear that the show is helping you along the path of transitioning you know, from financial advisor to a true CEO that's running a business. I find that to be one of the biggest struggles that advisors face as they grow. Also glad to hear you're finding the show is not only informational, but also entertaining. Glad I'm not boring. <laughs> I'll do my very best to keep delivering on that front. Thanks again for taking the time to share your thoughts. Okay, as we wrap the show, thanks again for those of you who have taken the time to write a quick review. I love reading each and every one, and it helps make the show better and know how I can better resonate with my listeners out there. And in fact, if you'd like to connect on a more personal level, give me a follow out on Twitter. My handle is Brad, I guess, at Brad underscore Johnson. Let me know you listen to the show, how you found it, what guests I should have on, etc. I'd love to continue the conversation out there. And for those of you that have interest in diving deeper or figuring out how you may be able to have our team help you implement many of the ideas shared on the show, my day job happens to be consulting financial advisors from all over the US on how to grow their business and design a practice that serves them versus them serving it. It's possible to grow your business and work less. I promise it's a model we've replicated over and over in markets all over the country. So if you'd like to apply to see if it makes sense for us to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation on how to overcome what may be getting in your way, you can do that at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y. It takes about five minutes to fill out the application so we can understand what your business looks like, what challenges you may be facing, and how myself and my team may be able to help. Taking the first step, it's as simple as applying out at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply. So that's all for this week. Thanks for listening in and I will catch you on the next show. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained here are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation. 